It's 2019, it's the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, and I'm Alex Ohili. Music. Welcome everyone. This is the first in a three-part series called The Ubermension of Capital. It's about the heroic, creative, and destructive figures that contemporary capitalism holds up as its role models. These figures are supposed to revolutionize society, but they actually play reactionary functions. So in the first episode of this series, we're talking about the special kinds of assholes we get in our economy, to quote our guest Alex Gurevich. This is the entrepreneur, the startup innovating disruptor. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the particularly creepy Peter Thiel. But is there something dark lying behind this? Here's a little foreshadowing of what's to come. Alex Gurevich on the cult of entrepreneurship. The way in which it really celebrates creativity as an act of kind of dominating others, and as these individual acts of rising, of breaking the constraints of society, and where everybody can only really participate actively or consciously in this breaking of restraints simply by identifying with the will and personality of the entrepreneur. I think, honestly, that's the real seat of any kind of deep-seated fascist tendency in our society. In the second part, to be released next week, we're looking at how certain economic liberal ideas and thinkers end up tending towards much more reactionary stances once democracy opens the door to the masses. So if society should be organized around the principle of achievement of the heroic capitalist, then might the market need protecting from democracy? Maybe, runs reactionary thought, if the capitalist rules over his factory as a consequence of his own merit, then maybe this hierarchical relationship should also obtain in politics. In the third part, we ask how we might get beyond this heroic capitalist straddling vast supply chains and hierarchies. Maybe the seeds to a freer future are actually being created in the here and now. One quick note before we get on with things, you'll notice we have new music and a new visual identity. We wanted to give a huge thanks to composer Johnny Mundy for our sleazy new musical backdrop and to designer Dewey Gonzalez at Ramune.io for giving Alpha Bunga Bunga the face we feel it deserves. We are eternally grateful to both for helping us out with this. Please go check out their work and the links are in the show notes. All right. Hello, everybody. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm Alex Hochuli, and I'm hosting this podcast. We have also Alpha Bunga Bunga regulars, George Hoare, who's in London, and Phil Cunliffe, in, who's in Canterbury. And uh, we have a special guest today. We have Alex Gurevich, who's professor of political science at Brown University and a political theorist. Uh, we're going to be mainly focusing today on the entrepreneur and entrepreneurialism, why the entrepreneur is such an important figure in contemporary society and how this has come about. Um, but first, we're going to start talking to Alex about uh, some other things that he's written. Uh, he's the author of From Slavery to the Cooperative Commonwealth and writes regularly for Jacobin and Catalyst. And he's actually working right now on a book on the right to strike. Hi, Alex. How's it going? Hi, uh, Alex. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I think we should repeat our own names just over and over quite a lot as we go through this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, Alex. um, Tell us firstly about the right to strike, because it is uh, sort of 
maybe it feels a bit unnecessary for a socialist to defend the right to strike. I mean, who who's against that? Why does that need defending and in what terms? It's a good question, Alex. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Um, I like how this is it's gone off. <laughs> it's good. Um, so the the argument I make for I mean you're right. In one sense, there's going to be people spontaneous spontaneously disposed to any argument for the right to strike. Um, but sometimes the ideas we're most sort of spontaneously inclined to agree with are the ones that we should sort of think about uh, with with some care um, to really kind of sort out the principles behind our, our normal political intuitions. And that was sort of one thing that got me interested in the right to strike was to really think about um, uh, what kind of a right it is and why it's why workers have it or why we think workers have it. And it turns out to be a lot more complicated uh, than we think. But the basic idea is that I think workers have a right to strike um, because they have a right to resist the oppression that they normally face as workers in a capitalist economy. Um, now, stated that way, I think most people would agree with it, but um, more specifically, what I mean by oppression is that they're deprived of certain kinds of freedom that they should enjoy, that everyone should enjoy. And I think a lot of people tend to think, well, there's sort of injustices that workers face, there's a lot of inequality, they should have better standards of living, and so on. And that's sort of a broadly accepted idea, but I think that's actually the wrong way to think about the problem. And the reason I emphasize the fact that they're oppressed because they're material levels of well-being is because I think that's the real principle that undergirds not just why workers have the right to strike or how we should think about the oppression that workers face, but also um, why the right to strike is the right response to that oppression. Because the a strike is uh, an effort by workers to use their own collective power to emancipate themselves from um, that they face. And so there's something really intrinsically connected between the fact that they're unfairly deprived of freedom and want to use their own agency uh, to kind of resist that oppression. And so what I like about the right to strike and what I think should be the kind of most appealing thing about it to the left um, is this connection with freedom, both in the sense that workers are oppressed insofar as they're deprived of freedoms that they should enjoy and uh, that that um, they're the ones who should claim their freedoms through their own uh, collective activity. What do you mean by, if I can just interject, this is this is Phil. Um, what do you mean by, so what kinds of freedoms are they deprived of that the right to strike can potentially recapture? Um, well, so sort of interconnected set of, of uh, freedoms they're deprived of or kinds of forcing that they face. Um, so one is that the economy is set up so that some people don't have to work at all, while others are forced to work um, at whatever job they can happen to find, uh, at whatever wage they can happen to bargain. And so that means there's a deeply unequal and asymmetrical way of kind of just organizing labor in the first place and of forcing some to work at any old job, satisfying any human need that there happens to be without any collective deliberation about the importance of those needs and the necessity of that job. Uh, while there's other people who are not similarly forced because they've inherited or have accumulated enough wealth that they don't have to work. So that's one thing. Um, but then it gets repeated and deepened uh, when people are in the workplace itself because the typical workplace is organized in a way that forces 
workers, both as a matter of law and as a matter of just material dependence, to, within certain very broad constraints, just submit to the commands of bosses. So it means that their normal daily activity is under someone else's control, not under their own individual or, or collective control. And this makes the workplace, the kind of most typical daily experience of most people, uh, essentially a kind of form of kind of authoritarian or even despotic rule. And I think anywhere where we have those kinds of authority, it's very difficult to ever justify them. And certainly not as a way of organizing how um, people um, engage in their work. And just to be clear, I think that's a feature of the typical workplace, not because certain bosses tend to be assholes, although many do, and we're going to talk about assholes in a minute. <laughs> um, but um, uh, they're the special kinds of assholes that we get in our economy. But uh, because that's how production is organized in a capitalist society. It's, you know, uh, employers are only going to hire people and make the profits if they enjoy the, the power to control the activities and sometimes even, you know, non-work activities of their employees. So this connects to this idea that the so much of the ordinary daily experience of the a working population in an advanced uh, Western economy is going to be one of hierarchy, oppression, authoritarian command, and so on. That connects to um, your work on labor, what you've called labor republicanism, which um, would sound, I suppose, to... Um, to someone hearing it for the first time might sound odd because it's not obvious what those two words mean when they're put together. So could you just briefly talk, connect um, connect some of this to your what your idea of labor republicanism is, what it means? Yeah, great, yeah. So the, the idea of labor republicanism, I mean, republicanism is sort of a term that isn't really anymore a major feature of our political culture outside debates about whether a society should have a king or a monarchy or, or not. But in a, you know, historically, it was a particular way of thinking about freedom, which is that you're free so long as others don't have arbitrary power over you. And it was used to argue, I mean, and so it's called republicanism because it comes from a certain way of thinking about freedom that comes from the classical republics of Rome and Athens. Uh, and this idea that you're only free if you're independent or others don't have arbitrary power over you originally was used to argue that for some to be free, others should be slaves or there have to be some dependent class of workers who do all the work and create the material conditions that allow others to be independent. But in the 18th and 19th century, you start to get the idea that um, this idea of sort of true independent self-government requires not just a kind of democratic um, form of government, but a, a democratic society, a whole way of organizing work such that everybody enjoys a condition of economic independence and nobody is dependent upon the arbitrary will of another. And this idea was originally used to criticize chattel slavery. And when, when I've researched it, I've looked particularly in the American context. So it was originally used to criticize uh, chattel slavery, but then it developed into an argument after slavery was abolished to criticize the new forms of dependent wage labor that emerged in a capitalist society. And so the labor Republicans was this group of sort of worker intellectuals, especially around the Knights of Labor, which was a very large political organization of workers in the late 19th century 
to argue that the only way for everyone to enjoy a real condition of independence and not be dependent upon the arbitrary power of someone else was to abolish wage labor itself, because wage labor always involves submission to a boss, and to replace it with a system of interlocking producers' cooperatives within the framework of a democratic state. Well, I, some, hearing you talk about this, it kind of strikes me that, um, I mean, how alien that might sound to certain ears today. I mean, part, especially, I think, perhaps, because we've uh, come to accept so much forms of control and domination in outside of work, in kind of... Uh, our regular day-to-day lives in terms of, for example, in terms of surveillance, for example, that to demand that in an area which has become more naturalized as an area of, of oppression and control seems to be yeah, quite, quite an alien idea that, that that might be kind of resisted outright. I agree. I mean, it's, it's striking um, how natural it was. When you read the kind of historical material, and like, you know, I sort of read these old journals and speeches and pamphlets, it's striking how natural it was for everyone to think that they just ought to be independent and that nobody should have not just control over them, but all kinds of information about them. Um, uh, part of what they hated about bosses was that, they, was that they collected information about them, not just in the job, but in their leisure time. They went and they would send sort of spies out to figure out whether they were out drinking and whether they were going to church and shit like that. And now that's kind of stuff, you know, is utterly routine, both in the private sphere among the kind of HR departments in major corporations and then the state. But the, the, the reason I think it's important to kind of think about this, this way of thinking is that um, at least in the United States, and the time I spent in England, this seemed to be somewhat true, it seemed to me as well, freedom's taken to be this kind of conservative value or a kind of ideological concept intrinsically linked to either kind of libertarian thinking or the ideology of capitalism. Um, It's kind of seen to be kind of individualistic. And what I was, what I wanted to do with the, with the book that I wrote and kind of bringing this labor republicanism to light was to remind everyone how radical a concept it can be. Once we really see it as a way of opening up all relationships of, of domination and dependence and how natural it was for people to see this as a reason for arguing against the real typical forms of unfreedom that people experience in their daily lives. And I think on, on, on that note, there hasn't really been such a profound transformation in the structure of workplaces. They remain the one place where there's been only a very limited um, and rather contingent democratization of that form of authority, unlike say the family or the state. But one thing that this brings to mind, just from kind of a recent experience, is that I, I visited uh, Fordlandia, which is this uh, former rubber plantation oh, yeah. in the Amazon set up by Henry Ford. And it was yeah. all these workers who used to be independent and lived in you know really brutal, uh, very difficult conditions, tapping rubber on their own in the middle of the Amazon and selling it for absolutely nothing for it only to be sold on uh, at a much higher price. And so they were brought into this plantation uh, all to work together. And they really graded against... Um, or what they really found grading was all the forms of control and um, all the kind of social mores which were mandated that they weren't allowed to drink um, 
well, particularly not being allowed to drink. The prohibition was was particularly grating for them. But they had a massive revolt and burnt the whole place down in 1930 when they yeah. introduced cafeteria style lunches, <laughs> and that was the thing that they that was like the the straw that broke the camel's back because they were used to being served in a restaurant and having accorded a certain degree of respect and finding that their own um, well their leisure time, I guess, when they're eating was suddenly submitted to the sort of regimentation that their own working life was. That was just too much for them. Yeah. No, I mean, you see these happen all the time. I mean, this links back to the to the stuff about the right to strike. So if you think that a right to strike is about um, uh, resisting all the forms of unjustified control that people experience, then a strike isn't just about wages and hours, although that's also one way of resisting oppression. Strikes can end up being about all kinds of things like control over the workplace and not having leisure time. So, for instance, there were... Um, there was a strike in uh, Pawtucket, which is in Rhode Island here, in Pawtucket uh, textile mills t- around the turn of the last century, when uh, people had their stools taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And then I covered the Verizon strike of 2016. And one of the major issues there was that if you were out laying these kinds of Fios cables and you were up on a pole or on someone's roof, and if you wanted to take a break and go to the bathroom or get a glass of or get a bottle of water, you had to first text your the, the boss back at HQ and get and ask permission to do this. And if you didn't get the text back giving you permission for whatever reason, and you nonetheless left, you would you would you would be fined, you'd be disciplined, you'd lose work, you'd be punished for you know going and getting a bottle of water, going to the bathroom. And so these are pretty persistent perennial problems. Hi there, sorry, we've resisted doing this until now, but we've now come asking for support. Uh, Alpha Bunga Bunga has been running for a total of 20 months now, funded out of our own pockets. We've grown and developed over time, of course, but now we really want to expand. This isn't a membership scheme, it's more of a tip jar. If you appreciate what we're doing, please do help us do more. Give however much you feel is appropriate. The link to the Patreon is in the show notes, patreon.com slash bungacast. Thank you very much in advance. If you're not in a financial position to do so, that's cool, totally understand. But if we could ask you to show us some free love and review us and rate us, that would be brilliant. Do it on iTunes, our Facebook page, or other podcast hosting sites. And remember, we're at bungacast on all social media. Tell your friends. And it connects, in fact, in an um, indirect way to the main topic of um, what we're talking about tonight, which is the um, political vision, political theory of the entrepreneur. And I suppose the way it connects is that for many people, kind of ordinary ordinary Joes stuck in the workplace, like you say, the and the ordinary kind of petty humiliations and experience of command and authority and hierarchy and so on, the entrepreneur seems to be this kind of Promethean individual who's freed from the constraints of the workplace because they impose their own will and vision on the labor process, on the work process. They're not constrained as, um, as the rest of us are by in the work process. And that seems that kind of appeal of the vision or that appeal of the entrepreneur is an important part of, um, how it ties in, I think, to, um, to the contemporary society, but we'll talk about that. So first, um, just to talk, so you're doing research on this at the moment, and um, you uh, shared a paper with us uh, about the political theory of the entrepreneur. Can you tell us what inspired the paper? 
Well, a couple of things inspired it. So one is I've taught at a bunch of colleges and, and universities. And one of the ubiquitous terms is this term entrepreneur. And it shows up in a number of ways. You just see all of these. I mean, most of the places I've taught were, have been sort of elite colleges in particular. And sort of from day one, all of these students are told that they're going to be entrepreneurs. And there's all kinds of classes on the entrepreneur and entrepreneurship. It's sort of the way in which it's communicated to them that they're people with special abilities. And it was just noticeable how much it sort of just penetrated social discourse generally, and in particular, the kind of mindset and, and habits of, of the kind of um, these ruling class colleges. Um, and also the way in which it's kind of spread into areas you wouldn't expect. So there's sort of scholarship on the idea of political entrepreneurs, which is the shitty, bizarre concept that somehow has acquired intellectual and scholarly authority. Um, but also people are called social entrepreneurs. And I, part of it, I can't fucking tell what the hell any of that means. And so it's just <laughs> awareness of how this concept has just seeped its way into places where it's just sort of has anything you want to speak about positively, you call it entrepreneurship. And so this itself was kind of a, a puzzle uh, to me. And then I've done a lot of reading and thinking about Schumpeter and Weber and Schumpeter taking over the kind of Weberian idea that um, in the economy, you have these kind of routinized parts of the economy, but then you have these kinds of disruptive um, moments of charismatic action by great figures. And that's, and I sort of always chewed over this thought in my head. And then the kind of thing that kind of put it all together was this article by Corey Robin um, called Nietzsche's Marginal Children that he first wrote in, uh, in The Nation, where he talks about sort of the interesting affinities, elective affinities between the kind of revolution in economics that happens around Fin de Siecle Vienna and sort of Nietzsche's own philosophy of um, and his own way of thinking about um, the idea that there are these ubermensch who transvalue values and how there's a, not a direct influence, but a kind of elective affinity between that thought and the ideas that you find in people uh, like Schumpeter and sort of that last, I don't know, something about reading that essay had sort of just concretized the thought that there was something really important and significant about the revival of the idea of the entrepreneur in our society since it had been in abeyance up until the last 20 or 30 years. So just, uh, hi, this is, is George. Um, just a question of clarification about what, what kind of entrepreneurs, who specifically are we talking about? Because it's striking your papers called Capital Personified. Who, who are these persons? You, you talk about, um, you, you, in the paper, you distinguish between these unglamorous, dark and sinister figures like the Koch brothers and instead um, talk much more about um, some of these these. Uh, very hyper-capitalist figures like Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, and everyone's favorite South African, uh, Elon Musk. What, what's the difference between these two sorts of groups of entrepreneurs that we have? Yeah, so part of what got me interested in this, I, should, I guess there's like a four, sort of fourth element, so to answer this also by way of answering the first question is that for the most part, I've been interested in just like the ordinary despotic authority that any old boss has over their employers. But then there's this sort of group within the capitalist class that is called entrepreneurs that isn't the same as any old capitalists. And they're these special figures, innovators, who in virtue of, of their capacity to innovate, get 
not only or not only claim sort of outsized profits and a great deal of social authority, but a kind of special right, an extra reason why they should be allowed to just impose their will on the workplace and the workers in it and treat them as pure extensions of their own will. So Jeff Bezos says that he runs Amazon by a fear economy and thinks everybody there should be afraid that they're going to lose their job. And that's the best way to run his, his uh, enterprise because it keeps everyone continuously on their toes and anxious and, you know, fearing for their, for their future. Um, and, and so I was kind of interested in this particular kind of subclass of sort of economic tyrants. Um, but the other reason is that sort of on the left in the United States in particular, most of the, critical energy goes into attacking these figures I called the unglamorous dark and sinister types like the Koch brothers and all of their dark money, which they pour into influencing universities and financing Republican campaigns and trying to corrupt politics. And what I wanted to do with this paper is to say, look, the real enemy isn't really the Koch brothers. They're not entrepreneurs. They're just ordinary capitalists. They make boatloads of money running already established enterprises, making products in more or less the known ways that people we know people already want to consume. You know, petrochemicals industry, Dixie cups, just kind of boring, ordinary consumer shit. But that really, if we take seriously what the entrepreneur is, and what entrepreneurs claim in virtue of their special qualities as entrepreneurs, not just ordinary profit-making capitalists. There's something actually much more problematic about them. But oddly, they come in for much less criticism. So people like Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, you can kind of do a whole list of them. They are actually, they're actually seen as somehow more praiseworthy more worthy of admiration or at least somehow less evil, even though there's ways in which I think they actually represent certain ideas internal to sort of a capitalist society that are much more sinister uh, mm. and much more authoritarian, um, uh, perhaps even sort of quasi-fascistic. So, Alex, I mean, if this is really interesting because I think it'd be interesting to unpick who are the entrepreneurs who um, really exemplify this or or what rather as a category makes them so problematic, as you put it. Uh, I guess who's the most entrepreneurial entrepreneur or who's the most who really captures this essence? Because, you know, when Steve Jobs died, that was there was this huge outpouring from quite a lot of society kind of going, oh, he was a guy who really, um, you know, who, who followed his passion. Right. I think that was the thing that was most often cited, uh, almost like the, it was the self-realization aspect, which mattered more than even what he ended up producing, because people probably could recognize that what he actually produced, you know, OK, it's nice to have like the iPhone. It's kind of cool that it combines all these different things in your pocket. But, you know, it wasn't this kind of world changing invention. Um, while someone like Jeff Bezos, I think everybody recognizes as an asshole. I mean, everybody knows now about what Amazon uh what are they called? Uh, fulfillment centers, as they're called euphemistically. Uh, yeah. But everyone knows what they're like now. Um, so no one sees him as this kind of great guy. Yes. Yeah, so so I think they're both entrepreneurs. I mean, one of the, the least pleasant part of doing research for this paper is I've actually had to watch a lot of videos by these guys talking about themselves. <laughs> and they really are insufferable narcissists um, in, in kind of the worst ways. But they're also interesting. And I think 
the the what makes both Jobs and Bezos an entrepreneur, I think reasonably an entrepreneur is the thing about entrepreneurs is they're not inventors, they're innovators. I think that's a distinction that is meaningful, at least inside a capitalist society. They don't invent a particular technology. It's well known that a lot of what Jobs did was take already either kind of take credit for other people's inventions or sort of slightly less cynically, take a lot of stuff that other people had invented, but figure out how to put it together and make a commodity, produce a commodity no one had ever produced before, and convince others that it really satisfied a need people didn't know they had. So the innovation is a purely economic one in the sense that it's both supply of something that nobody had really supplied before and the production of, at the same time, production of the demand for that commodity. So are they in? Sorry, Alex. Just to, yeah. to so are they in some way kind of middlemen? Then is that is that is that the idea that they don't they they're not kind of um, incredible in the realm of production, um, but it's more that they they can create a need and they can yeah. mediate between production and and the the market. Well, just to tag something onto that as well, because sure. another figure which we haven't discussed is the salesman. And that's it's, what you've just described sounds a little bit like the salesman, which I think, especially in somewhere like the United States, that can be a figure who is sometimes admired um, for their kind of cleverness, for their wit, the way in bending their, their the consumer's mind to to accept something. Um, I mean, actually, you can see this quite well in, in Better Call Saul, the kind of TV series. That's quite a good example yeah. of, of the consummate salesman. But he's not ex- especially a respected figure the way that the entrepreneur seems to be. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a slippery concept because it very easily slides into much less savory activity or much less kind of savory social types. And I think the distinction is entrepreneurs have to engage in salesmanship insofar as they're always kind of trying to claim that they've got insight into popular tastes and desires and a special contact with popular tastes and desires, even to the extent of knowing them better than the people who have them know them. Um, and insofar as they're then trying to meet that by producing commodities and selling them on the market, rather than satisfy these desires in some other way, they need to persuade people to buy them and kind of induce them and even seduce them into doing it. So there's always salesmanship. But I think the difference between a pure salesman and the entrepreneur is that they really lead that what they achieve is They don't just kind of convince some people to buy things, but they really lead to a transformation in values, in the scale of values across a whole society. They they lead people to really understand their daily activity and their kind of essential needs in new ways, such that people suddenly can't imagine going about their lives anymore uh, without this commodity that they've bought being a central part of it. And in that sense... That's something Jobs talks a lot about, actually, if you listen to him. He says, I don't invent the technology and then try and sell it. I listen to the consumer and then reverse engineer the technology. And I think that that's, you know, that that he had a capacity to understand that. And he had a real insight into that. Should be said as an aside that Steve Jobs was also an enormous fucking asshole. Um, (laughs) the, The massive lawsuit against him and Google and a bunch of people on wage fixing. And the emails they unearthed about him threatening to destroy people uh, are, are kind of entertainment, entertaining to a degree. But he was also exactly like Bezos in this regard. And it stems from this kind of cultural authority that they claim, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they feel at times like the unappreciated genius because they see further than everybody else. 
and they can't let anyone else think for themselves because if they do, they won't appreciate the sheer genius of the creation that they want to execute. And so this kind of tyrannical impulse, I think, is deeply linked to their way of thinking about creativity, which is that you transform a culture by kind of destroying competition and, 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 and creating this commodity that everybody suddenly sees as a need. So trying to fix then on this, um, the appeal. So you've got yeah. this, you've got yeah. the tyranny, um, you've got the kind of tyrannic impulse that comes with it. But um, in principle, I mean, you know, what's wrong with somebody innovating, innovating uh, new ideas of connecting technology, technological devices that are already there, or discovering needs for ourselves that we didn't know we had? Um, what's the... I suppose what's at issue when we're thinking about the entrepreneur as a type, what's the problem with the fact that there um, are creative people who might see opportunities that other people don't? Good, yeah. So, yeah, one has to be careful about making it sound like one's a critic of creativity or uh, sort of invention and cultural and technological progress. And that's why the uh, the paper that I wrote, which was sort of the the, the background or premise for, for this discussion was called a political theory of the entrepreneur. So my issue isn't with the very idea of creativity or with sort of disrupting existing rules, but the particular way in which the entrepreneur and the ideology around entrepreneurship links creativity to domination of others and um, tends to see it as something exclusively individual that's a product entirely of individual geniuses. Um, so, like, what's what are the basic features of entrepreneurship? The idea is that what entrepreneurs do is they innovate. Uh, they innovate by creating these new demands and new products for them to for people to enjoy, and they do that by destroying all other competitors, and by viewing the, most people as sheep as incapable of participating in or being a part of any creative social process, which is partly why entrepreneurs are supposed to uniquely operate through the market rather than, say, through politics. The whole point about what's particular to entrepreneurs is they don't actually have to persuade people. Actually, Schumpeter was this sort of Austrian economist around the turn of the last century, um, I think gets it quite right when he says, what distinguishes the entrepreneur from, say, political leaders is that they don't have to persuade their followers to go along with them in the production of this new kind of social and cultural world. They just pay for the labor and dominate it and tyrannize over that work, those workers until they've produced the thing that they want. And then you induce people to, to buy this commodity. So what you get in entrepreneurship is, on the one hand, in virtue of being these creative types, people who claim enormous outsized profits, so they generate enormous inequalities, which then kind of reproduces a condition in which only a few people could ever attain this social position. They tyrannize their own workers in particularly egregious ways. And they came a special kind of authority for this way of thinking about creativity. So it leads people to think not only that you can only be creative as an individual, but that to be creative is to stand out as this kind of ubermensch figure, as a person of very rare supernormal will and intellect, as, as Schumpeter calls it, which by inference means that only a few people, again, could ever be creative in this way. 
And that in the end, the moment in which you really realize that creativity is again by dominating others, not just in the workplace, but all of your competitors. And that's, I think, a very degraded way of thinking about uh, creativity. And insofar as people find this appealing, I think what they're, what, what, because you asked about why, you know, um, what is it that leads people to see these things positively? Insofar as people find this appealing, it's, um, it's pretty awful because what people find appealing is identifying creativity with domination, with deserving enormous outsized rewards, and um, with uh, uh, exercising sort of despotic control over the workplace. So insofar as that's what people find appealing, aside from just the kind of normal celebrity of being a famous, you know, rich person, I think it's corrupt. But there are other things that I think can't be seen as, as, as um, wrong or as just inherently bad. And those- I suppose I was going to, but what I was getting at is also the fact, isn't it, what it speaks to, at least the appeal of it, it speaks to the yearning to free oneself surely from the restrictions of the workplace from the tyranny and mm. the degraded aspect of that like you say is the impulse the only way to envision that eman- that emancipation is to tyrannize others um to yeah. kind of withdraw yourself from the situation and tyrannize others but um the impulse itself um speaks to at least potentially speaks to a liberatory impulse doesn't it yeah so i mean i guess it just depends on on what the liberatory impulse is i mean i agree with you that one thing that people find kind of romantic and exciting about entrepreneurs is that they disobey all the rules. Um, they, you know, they don't go to college. They're the ones who get rich, but don't go to college. They're the ones who, because they're so enormously rich can sort of play by a different set of rules, rules that they make rather than merely submit to. They break through the normal routines of everyday life. Um, it's just kind of more exciting to live that kind of life. And to the degree that it's a reaction by people to either the kind of routinization and kind of stultification of ordinary life by the normal routines and disciplines of capitalist society, that's certainly a, a liberatory desire. And, it, and I think the second thing, I just add one more thing, is the desire for like, a, a you know, the kind of representative of human potential. So... It is true that when entrepreneurs really are entrepreneurial, they remind us of the capacity of human beings to exceed the kind of normal and natural limits of everyday life, to constantly reach beyond where you happen to find yourself. And I think that probably speaks to um, Elon Musk's popularity um, compared to people like Bezos even and Jobs. Um, But I know Alex wanted to come specifically here as well. Well, I mean, yeah, because I think the way that uh, this is valorized and the the way that it's put to political use is through the notion of disruption and through that through their self-driven impulse uh, to disrupt and through their inherent creativity, uh, they... Um, kind of get through the a sense of stagnation, and and the way that's right. put to work politically is in in a in accompaniment to calls for reform. I mean, we only have to think about uh, Macron's en marche in France to to see how yeah. this plays out politically in the in its most probably its most politically explicit form that it's that it's yet been put to. I think, in my opinion, um, so you know, I mean. Just to spell it out a little bit more, you know, calls for flexibilization of labor markets or lower taxes. This is a way that through the entrepreneur, we fight against a stagnant capitalism. It's the only thing that can break through right. the way that we're held back by the legacies of welfareism. You know, the entrepreneur is an energetic new figure that can shake things up. And 
I guess, is this, I mean, one question that I did yeah. have specifically about this, is this a way for the elite to renew itself from, from within uh, to get yeah. past its own stagnation and bureaucratization? Good. So that's, that's a good point. There's actually, it's funny that you brought up um, Macron because there's this funny story that uh, from the early 2000s, Blair was, or uh, George W. Bush was in a meeting with Blair and in it, he turns to Blair and he says, you know, the problem with the French is that they don't have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> It's one of my favorite quotes ever that I was glad you put it in. So, so oh yeah, I, I can't remember if it's in the, in the paper, but uh, of course, then they all publicly denied it because it's the kind of thing you would deny, um, but uh, at least in public. But what was kind of revealing about it is actually that um, in English, in early modern English, when they tried to translate entrepreneur, the two words most commonly used to translate it into English before it just became the, the, the French word as the term of art was either undertaker, mm. which, you know, <laughs> perfect. perfect, right? Cause it's kind of the opposite instead of giving new life or whatever, it's the guy's going to, going to bring, bring you to the graveyard. And so translators didn't like it for that reason, but also for another reason it's used in Smith, I think actually quite tellingly uh, undertaker is the word that he uses um, because um, it's too boring. It's just someone who kind of undertakes uh, to do something in business. And so for in Smith, there's no real figure like capitalists are just virtuous savers who accumulate some wealth, but there are no particularly heroic figures anywhere in, in Smith. And then the other word though, captured entirely the opposite aspect of it, which was the other word was adventurer. So that was the most that was the most commonly used word aside from undertaker to translate the word entrepreneur into English. And that was meant to capture this kind of the, the person who's willing to kind of venture out beyond the normal economic opportunities and breathe new life into uh, the economy. And I think you're right, Alex, to say that what the ideology of the entrepreneur does or the celebration entrepreneur does is at least in part respond to the stagnation of capitalism by looking for resources within capital itself for its own renewal. So I was going to say, I mean, just link to that is it's interesting you say the kind of the evolution of the word and that there is no single kind of heroic individual in Adam Smith's vision of yeah. what capitalism is only kind of virtuous savers, yeah. even and even, you know, so there's just the anonymous you, logic of the market. Smith. Yeah. Mm. And when you get to, however, when you get to um, the kind of high, the era of high industry and well past the industrial revolution, and when um, when I suppose capitalism has become much more uh, restrictive, coercive, regulated and governed by in more obviously kind of um, super personal forces, forces that are outside the control of any individual, you get the growing turn. To, I mean, I think this is the logic of what you're saying in the paper. Yeah. You get the turn towards these um, heroic Promethean figures who can, right. Um, right. again, kind of personalize our understanding of society as opposed to just anonymous market forces or uh, virtuous savers putting away a bit of money in order to become kind of bourgeois. Right. No, I mean, <clears throat> I think it's important that uh, you only really get that way of talking about the entrepreneur in the late 19th and early 20th century. So earlier figures who wrote about the entrepreneur, like Richard Cantillon, who was arguably the first person to talk about it in modern economic theory, um, who wrote about it in the early 18th century, Jean-Baptiste Say, they basically talk about entrepreneurs as sort of either merchants who kind of take a risk 
they're middlemen. I think George was talking about middlemen who kind of just take the risk of going and finding a new way of a new market for selling an existing good. Or the kind of petty bourgeois kind of um, individual proprietor who sees a chance to turn his little kind of craft activity into kind of a factory, a chance to actually kind of do a little bit of industrialization, hire some people, produce a little more, industrialize France. And so they're always kept kind of contained within the development of a capitalist order that's still fighting against the feudal order for establishing itself and the creation of a kind of a modern industrial economy. But you don't have the kind of consol the, the, the phase of monopoly capitalism on the one hand, which really, you know, so you just get these massive enterprises colonizing whole segments of, of, of the economy on the one hand, but also kind of trying to bring it under some more routinized control. Um, and that you only get late 19th, early 20th century. But the other thing that's very important, I think, um, about that period is that also two things happen to the kind of cultural authority of capitalism. One is that its original cultural authority, which was really linked to kind of Puritan values, the ethic of saving, working hard, making an honest living, living sort of making money within the means of what you're capable of, not doing it by force or fraud, all of those sort of Puritan values are just incommensurate with the scope and scale of capitalism. It's become an enormous consumer society that's appealing to people's tastes, leading them to kind of indulge in the desires of this world. And those who make money do so not just by kind of scrimping and saving, but by borrowing, borrowing huge amounts and speculating. And so the whole dynamic of capitalism has come to kind of burst its original cultural sources on the one so, hand. It's, and, so, but then just to say on the other side that all of this cultural authority gets taken up by democratic and social movements, socialist movements, who bring the idea of revolutioning society through politics mm. uh, so, into the fore. And so this is a, the idea that you can do a revolution within capitalism by the ruling class acquires a kind of new valence in that context. So I think this is really interesting around this, this point around cultural authority. I mean, how would you, how might you react to, um, a maybe more skeptical question, which is along the lines that don't kind of don't we all know that the figure of the entrepreneur as instantiated today, um, despite the potential for creativity that socialists will always find appealing that you talked about previously, nine times out of ten um, is basically a sham. So anybody who, who on their Twitter bio might have entrepreneur as a description, a self description. They're clearly <laughs> they have um, yeah. some 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 problems. And, and you can yeah. just look at some of the, the main figures here so trump inherited his money and then lost some alan sugar in the british context is described yeah. as a serial entrepreneur so basically failed many many times um elon musk hyper rich pork skin child um so what i guess what what could the analysis of of the entrepreneur as a as a, as a figure do right. to kind of um i guess under undermine that or or reverse the idea that we we kind of maybe are a little bit skeptical of, of whether these people are as good as they say they are. Yeah, I think there are a lot of sham entrepreneurs, but it doesn't mean that the idea of the entrepreneur is a pure sham. Um, so there's certainly all kinds of entrepreneurs who owe, who either just never succeed in doing what they say they're going to do or who, who owe their success entirely to others, often the aid of mm. the state. 
And we can sort of never forget that fact because it's certainly a feature of capitalism generally that just large scale capitalist enterprises are dependent upon the state at this point in so many different ways. But that doesn't mean that the entrepreneur is a sham. And I think it's, it's, there's, there's a quite, quite the opposite. It re- doesn't it reinforce it? I mean, the very fact that you have so many people hoping to become entrepreneurs or thinking of themselves as entrepreneurs and the fact that you only have a few who actually succeed to right. reach those kinds of heights, that surely reinforces the sense of the, um, the Promethean kind of individual right. who manages to rise above all the mediocrity. That's apparently, right. so, appar- yeah. apparently 400,000 students in the United States in 2013 took entrepreneurship classes. So there's yeah. clearly demand for it. There's, yeah, I mean, everybody thinks it. So it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, you could still say that people who succeed succeed only with the help of others. But, but I think it's a mistake to kind of go de- think that's the route to the proper critique of the entrepreneur. I think it's worth taking seriously as, on its own terms. Um, for that some of it has to do with the reasons I already mentioned, which is that, um, you know, this, this is, it's only when we imagine there to be people like this. It's not just that we imagine there are people like this, but it really is the case that in a capitalist society, this is how creativity and innovation takes place. That it's only through people with um, this, with the kind of economic power that entrepreneurs enjoy, it's only they who are put in the social position of being able to create and innovate. So it just is the case that Steve Jobs is responsible for creating and completely transforming the way in which we kind of communicate with each other. Now, it's true that the state, among others, helped finance a number of the things that he used and, you know, did any number of other things that made it possible for him to do that. But it wasn't the state or anyone else who set in motion the multiple innovations of the Apple, you know, the iPod, the iPhone, touchscreen, et cetera, and who transformed sort of, you know, our, our way of relating to, to other people and communicating with them. And so I think it's important to take entrepreneurship seriously, not merely as a sham, because it requires us to think not just about how capitalism organizes sort of cultural transformation and how it does this by giving certain people in the market certain kinds of power and authority. But it also means the left has to take seriously the problem of thinking about how it would think about creativity and mm-hmm. a way of thinking about creativity as not the kind of semi-conscious process by which a few you know, so-called geniuses impose their will on people mm-hmm. who don't really realize what's happening, but instead as something much more conscious and collective and that could, in principle, happen through you know collective political activity rather than through um, uh, the market. So this this brings brings us on to um, a question around, I guess, one of the kind of most influential leftist um, approaches, perhaps to to the entrepreneur. And this is maybe this Foucauldian idea that mm. neoliberalism necessitates making us all into an entrepreneur. We're an entrepreneur of the self. You are, we all are. We're, we're promoting our brand on, on podcasts and, and through writing various, various things. Obviously that's not to undermine what, what you've, you've written, but I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, just to make that, just to make that clear. Well, you guys are assholes. <laughs> yeah. Special kind of assholes that we get in the economy. I think that's your words. Um, so maybe to make that question, to just try again to, to frame that, how would you respond to this Foucauldian idea that we're, we're basically, we're all entrepreneurs now and, and the correct 
responses is instead of this structural critique is instead to say yeah we we all have to do it yeah, I, i've got to admit I'm, I'm i'm suspicious of this foucauldian idea for one it seems to be at most an accurate description of a very small subset of the labor market i mean you know someone in the was it wendy brown made a lot of this idea um, others made a lot of this idea also to kind of argue that now that we've become entrepreneurs of the self, we're not sellers of labor power, but sellers of our brand. And we're no longer in capitalism now because we've all become entrepreneurs. And that, it seems sort of like faddish thinking to me. But also, um, you can only think this is what has generally happened if you confuse what has happened in a small sector of the labor market, primarily, I think, sort of certain kinds of professionals who work in sort of spheres of the professions that involve some degree of autonomous self-direction with the labor market as a whole. I mean, the massive growth in the labor market has happened in the service sector, low-wage industries, things like healthcare and um, food service and retail. And those people aren't being hired because they've successfully produced themselves of entrepreneurs. They've been hired because they're willing to accept $10 an hour. Uh, and there's nothing that they particularly do that has to do with them being entrepreneurs. Um, so I, I think the entrepreneur, the self idea has, has just somehow, um, taken on a kind of explanatory significance that's sort of beyond what it can bear and leads us to kind of ignore some of the kind of just normal facts about what most people are doing even in this economy, which is they're just going out and selling their labor power for a wage and then taking mm. orders from a boss. You know, those people in the Amazon fulfillment centers, they sign contracts that involve saying you're, I don't know, you're fucking helpers of everybody discovering, self-realizing themselves or something like that. But they're just doing it because they need the job and they're just directed through these giant warehouses, getting boxes and putting them on carts, you know? So um, I don't, I just... So to that extent, I don't think it has a lot of power. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think this is kind of interesting because it does bring to mind a contrast which you raise in your paper, which I think is, uh, to me, was one of the most interesting things. I hadn't really set the two up against each other. Now, these two things are meritocracy on the one hand and entrepreneurship Mm. on the other. And they seem similar. If you haven't really thought about them, you think they're probably the same thing, right? You work hard, you're really clever and creative, and you get the just reward. So those people who are rich got there because they deserve it. But I think the thing you point out is that they're not the same, that meritocracy is about, you know, going, studying, going to university, working hard, following the rules, and that you'll get your just rewards, even maybe something that's applicable to the Amazon fulfillment center worker that if they work really hard and maybe save up and do community college on the side that they can then move forward and then become their own boss and da, 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 da. And and so, so goes the story, but entrepreneurship is something different. Um, maybe you can lay this out for us. Yeah. So, um, so I meritocracy and entrepreneurship are, I think, both ideologies for and of the ruling class, but they're kind of different parts. So you had James, James Hartfield on some while back talking about the equal opportunities revolution. Mm. And, you know, there he was talking about the kind of the real rise of the meritocratic ideology, which was basically that. So long as you design institutions that guarantee everyone equal opportunity, so even corporations now have their non-discrimination or equal opportunities office and make sure nobody's discriminated against based on any arbitrary personal characteristics like race, gender, sexual orientation, age, and so on. 
So you set up the institutions to guarantee that everyone has an equal opportunity. And if everybody follows the rules, then what the institutions do is discover those people who are naturally suited to rule. And they get to have the positions of special power and authority. They get to run the corporations, be in the universities, be in the professions, and be in the state. And they get to make the decisions. And they're supposed to have a right to make decisions because the institutions are set up to select the people who are naturally superior. That's the kind of claim of meritocracy. They deserve it. They merit it because there was supposedly a level playing field um, for for figuring out. Uh, and given that it was level level playing field, then the people with the most talent and energy are the ones who win. But that presupposes everybody kind of follows the rules and goes through the same procedures. You work hard in high school, you go to college, you get a degree, you then work your way up the ladder. There's kind of set rules and places and, and, and so on. And it only really works if everybody is playing by the rules. Whereas entrepreneurship, on the one hand, has a very close affinity with meritocracy because it's still a theory that is built on not just justifying why people, certain people rule everyone else, but that the people who rule should be ruling everyone else because they're naturally superior. But the thought is that the natural superiority of the entrepreneur is proved by the person who's able to break all the rules and nonetheless succeed. So it's, you know, if the kind of one liners, you know, meritocracy, you go to college, work hard, you graduate at the top of your class and you get to be an asshole like Brett Kavanaugh and appointed the Supreme Court. Mm. Whereas Bill Gates dropped out of college because it was too normal, too normy. Um, and the real, um, the kind of really successful, insightful man of genius is the one who can figure out how to succeed and operate the market without having followed the rules and precisely by not following the rules. So this seems to seem kind of to incorporate, be... sorry, Phil. Um, well, they're just going to say they seem to feed off each other, right? Absolutely. So on the, the merit, you know, the people who, who are the meritocrats, they can look wistfully at the right. uh, on the other side, at the entrepreneurs who manage to succeed, and the entrepreneurs, um, you know, rely on the meritocrats to be their doctors, politicians, lawyers, and judges, and so on. Um, and but it, and essentially, the so I suppose the entirety of the social order then is effectively captured by this um, deeply middle class vision of mm -hmm. what um, what success and achievement looks like. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I'd have to think about the deeply middle class character of the of the ideas, but the but I agree with you that they feed off each other, and I think they feed off each other in in one other way, which is that both groups are wholly convinced not only that they have a right to their position because of their natural superiority, but that the only role of everyone else is just to go along, is to submit. That there's no independent claim that people have just as individuals who have a right and claim to some measure of freedom. Uh, I mean, the merit, both groups kind of also fancy that their positions of power are to the benefit of everyone else. So the meritocratic view is, you know, technocracy expert rule is better because you don't want morons running the show. Um, and if you've, you know, you go to the doctor who's a good doctor because you want, you know, you want to be healed, not just cut up and left to die on a operating floor. And obviously there's some truth to that, but then they, they take that truth and make it ideological by explaining why both they get general social and cultural authority and to occupy very rare positions, scarce, not rare, scarce positions of power and authority, and why nobody else has any real claim to criticize all of the kind of wealth and power that they, mm. that they enjoy. 
Um, and there's uh, what's very middle class. I mean, I'll agree that the meritocratic view is very middle class, especially since it kind of um, it tries to kind of imagine that they aren't doing any ruling at all. It's just the institutions and procedures that do it. I think there's something a bit more sinister about entrepreneurship um, because the way in which it really celebrates creativity as an act of kind of dominating others and as these individual acts of rising, of breaking the constraints of society and where everybody can only really participate actively or consciously in this breaking of the constraints simply by identifying with the will and personality of the entrepreneur. I think, honestly, that's the real seat of any kind of deep-seated fascist tendency in our society. Everybody thinks it's like white nationalism and Trump. But that's turned out to be a very unpopular um, uh, way of ruling. And they, Trump only really rules through the most undemocratic, anti-popular institutions in our society. Gets there because the Electoral College and the Senate and the judiciary are on his side. But, the, but, the, but this very deep-seated idea, which is, I think, there in the entrepreneur, which is like sort of by everybody just identifying with the charisma and authority of this entrepreneur who breaks the rules and just kind of coercively imposes his will on society, I think is you know, much closer to kind of the dark side of a kind of irrationalism um, uh, in society that is much closer to fascist ways of thinking than anything really Trump's ended up cooking up. So, Alex, just a, a quick, maybe a quick final question. Um, do you watch The Apprentice? No, I don't. I know I should. But I don't think I mean, I should just say I just don't think Trump's an entrepreneur. OK, he's never cause... done. It. He, he's failed at every, at, you know, I, I mean, everybody's pointed out if he had just taken the money he inherited it and, <laughs> and indexed it stock market, he'd be far wealthier. And in fact, a study just Forbes just came out with a publication last week which showed that he's failed even to profit off his own presidency. <laughs> wow. His net wealth has declined, <laughs> which is pathetic. I mean, he is a really pathetic excuse for a human being if he can't figure out. I mean, every politician knows how to profit off of their position. You can't make a deal in that context. Yeah, That's, he's uh... the worst fucking deal maker ever. Okay, that's it for part one of the Uber Mention of Capital. Here's a reminder about our Patreon at patreon.com slash bungacast. Please chip in if you feel we're worth it and do review the podcast on iTunes, other podcast hosts, or on Facebook. Catch you later. Bye-bye. If you have time for one final question, which I was just thinking, yeah. I mean, sure. aren't, aren't, aren't podcasters the true entrepreneurs because they <laughs> they bring together these things and, and create something new and and compelling and, and they, they the uh, it's new you do the like some weird things that actually disseminate it and see the need for it we create the need for it we impose so our will on the world exactly i mean i gotta say i i love listening to to podcasts uh, I listen to a lot of them because I have to drive down to Providence. So I listen to six hours at least of podcasts a week, sometimes more. Um, and uh, yeah, it's funny how it's suddenly taken hold and especially taken hold in an era where the argument's supposed to have been that entertainment had to be more intensely kind of visual and mm. sensory affecting and less cerebral and conceptual, less long form. And yet now all these podcasts, I mean, there's, there's loads of them and they all seem to kind of, I mean, they're, they're low budget. I guess that's one thing. That's what we but, said, man. We're filling a need. We created the need and now we're filling yeah. it.
I, you seem to be surfing on a wave that uh, others created, perhaps. <laughs> oh, really? And also, also, you guys haven't figured out how to monetize the thing. <laughs> yeah. This is, yeah this... we, have. We, we figured out how you to spend. That entrepreneurship 101. We're, we're losing money. money. <laughs> we're losing money like all good entrepreneurs do right at the beginning. So. <laughs> Yeah, you need a state bailout. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, absolutely we do. Whether it's from Moscow or Washington, doesn't matter as long as we get it. Has Phil filled you in on the um, what we ask from guests? Because basically what happens is if you give us some 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 money, um, just a, it's a very reasonable amount, then future guests, because we'll have more guests, will then give us money and we'll be able to pay you back more than you've given us. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, mean, uh, I lost all my money to Henry Madoff. Uh, I was going to say, because you, you have an opportunity to get in on the ground floor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you delay, is, then it's, you know, it's up to you. There. You could lose out. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess I'll have to take that risk. The, uh... Uh, this is not a pyramid away. scheme. It's a, it's a parallelogram <laughs> scheme. It's something different. <laughs> it's, a, it's a straight line. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The and it just goes game. upwards. It just goes upwards. Have to work out just goes, yeah, exactly. It just continuously it funnels all money. <laughs> well, me, meanwhile, the um, speaking of straight lines and Ponzi schemes, the, uh, the sky has started to fall in the United States. Uh, I don't know if you've followed, followed this, but the, the, the market the started. stock market's down. Yeah. What happened? Two days in a row. Oh, it's the bonds, basically. Well, what happens, the Fed, it, people have been waiting for this. The Fed has gradually been raising rates. And at some point, this was going to start pushing bond yields up. Um, and I don't know, you know, there's this sort of animal spirits aspect of it, which is when bond prices go above, um, when bond yields go up above 3% as a response to rising interest rates, there is this, it's that sort of, it's supposed to be a magical number, but people start to fear, they start going to bonds, more secure returns, Stock market looks sort of risky and way inflated, and um, and so and once that sell-off starts, uh, and and bond yields went up above three percent like three days ago, and that's just what kicked it off. And that's uh, the sell-off then. And that's the beginning of a sell-off. But what? But the, only, but the other reason I brought it up is that you know Trump, he, everyone, you know, oh Trump, the authoritarian, the kind of fascist leader of America, so on. You know, he he has been complaining about the Fed ever since he even before he appointed Jerome Powell, but he appointed Jerome Powell, who's the head of the Fed, who's raising rates. And every time he raises rates, Fed says, he's going crazy, you know, he's terrible. And he says this about the FBI as well, about Jeff Sessions, who's investigating Donald Trump. And everyone says he's like this, you know, Trump's supposed to be this amazing, tyrannical, authoritarian figure. And the only thing he does when his own attorney general and his own Fed chair fucks with him is complains on Twitter, you know, <laughs> and it really separates him. It's just noticeably, it just so separates him from the, from these other right-wing populists. Like, what does Erdogan do? He appoints his fucking son-in-law, finance minister, completely <laughs> desperate over uh, Turkish finance, refuses to raise interest rates despite a massive capital run against uh, Turkey, and then he cleans out the judiciary when he doesn't like how it's behaving. Same with, like, Orban... All of these other guys actually know how to impose their will. Trump has absolutely, it's really striking, he has absolutely no capacity. He sits there just helplessly watching the stock market crash around him. And he does nothing. Well, he doesn't I'll even... 
Unless we find out that like he can control animal spirits through his tweets. Maybe that's the, the big manipulation he's able to carry out. <laughs> well, this is why this Forbes report was so funny because everybody is, well, not everybody, I had assumed and a bunch of people I knew who sort of followed finance assumed that what was happening was that people around him and including people managing his assets who had, you know, who knew what he was saying were basically shorting the stocks that he was tweeting, mm. right? <laughs> because you could make, you know, if you were in the room and knew shit he was saying about Amazon or whatever, you would just walk out and short the stock. <laughs> and since the people ask, managing his assets are supposedly firewalled from him, they could just do that. He could be getting insanely wealthy, but he wasn't doing any of that. It's, it's, it's mind boggling. Like he's just, um, his, he's, uh, what's it? Ivanka Trump had to sell off one of her brand lines actually. Um, uh, uh, because she couldn't be connected to it anymore. And the, the managers of that brand felt that it was actually hurting sales. It just goes to show what a great political leader he is rather than an entrepreneur. He's an artist. He's not a political <laughs> leader. <laughs> well, He's you know what he is, is? He is unbelievably camp. Yeah. He, is, he is the campiest president we have I, ever I, I, You know, when he was elected, that's what I, that was the first thing I posted. I was like, we need to celebrate America's first camp president. It was <laughs> like, Oh, my God. Did you see the stuff about how... When he got into the Oval Office, they, there's these sort of like preparatory shit that they have to do, like, oh, you know, how are you going to decorate or whatever. And what he wanted was the folder with all of the different kinds of drapes that he could have in the <laughs> Oval Office. And that what he wanted was the really gaudy gold drapes because he felt that they were really luxurious. Yeah. And his big criticism of Obama at the time was we hosted a bunch of leaders and he felt that the tent in which they met wasn't sufficiently like glamorous and ostentatious but you know his latest thing is that who is it there's an ambassador to germany who he's obsessed with and who he's just talking about keeps talking about as being this beautiful man and uh, his name is grunel grunel or something like that and so everybody's making fun of this because it's just it's these all these tweets and stuff so campy and, and he's talking about because it looks like he'll probably be the person that will replace nikki haley mm. or might be uh but it turns out at the end of the day he's gay that not only has Trump having this weird like man crush on the on the German on the ambassador of Germany, but that this beautiful man that Trump keeps calling beautiful in these kinds of weird ways is in fact gay. Superb. Uh, so Trump is just super camp. It's camp nationalism. It's the only thing he really has <laughs> in common with fascism. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. It's like camp, he needs to, he does, Yeah, fortunately, hasn't got any kind of. Uh, like kind of Hugo Boss style designed military paramilitary uniforms. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, maybe uh, we should have another a whole other episode to kind of dig down on this uh, aesthetic well, that's, critique uh, that's of that's Trump. That's opportunity right there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's noticeable, too, because supposedly he's supposed to be the kind of model of toxic masculinity. Yeah. Mm. It, yeah. It's the opposite. It's just such yeah. nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's complete nonsense. I mean, the masculinity he represents is, is much campier. and well, it's, it's whiny and self-pitying as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like everybody was saying, oh, Talking you know, as a podcaster. people saying, oh, we don't break crying during his confirmation, his, you know, that Senate testimony that no one's going to like that. That wasn't manly. And I say it's the opposite, man. Trump absolutely loves melodrama. Mm-hmm. He lives he for the drama. Melo- What's that? He, he lives for the drama. Yeah, he just lives for the drama. Well, he loves TV, though, right? I mean, he watches yeah. all of this stuff on TV, and this is what he. This is the drama. This is the stuff he loves. Yeah. It makes good TV, like The Apprentice. 